Hi there. Today on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by Fritz Kirsch. He's best known for directing Stephen King's The Children of the Corn, but he also directed Tough Turf, which starred a young James Spader and featured a very young Robert Downey Jr. We talk about those and much more today on The Chattering Hour. And we're back with our special guest, Fritz Kirsch. He's a successful writer, director, producer of films, and a professor of film studies. And as you'll hear, he's still working. Let's get right to it. Fritz, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Well, this is a, this is a great chance to uh, visit and get to know everybody and certainly talk about things that we're all familiar with and enjoy. And I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Cool, cool. So what I'd like to do is to kind of take you right back to your very beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? Oh, uh, well, the, the birth certificate says Texas, of all places. Uh, but then my father uh, was a college university professor, an Ivy League professor and scientist. And uh, through our life, we lived in a number of um, cities, but mostly uh, upstate New York and uh, Ithaca, New York. And there he um, continued to teach, but we did some travel uh, living abroad for um, a year or so when he received grants. So my um, background really is geographically spread. Um, I've been influenced by all kinds of um, residences around the world almost. Wow. Wow. What was your uh, father um, teaching? George Kirsch, my father, Dr. Kirsch, that's where we get the name, right. um, was a geologist. Uh, and uh, he taught at Cornell University. He ran the department there. And then he was a, um, oh, he gave a lot of professional uh, opinion, uh, legal opinion on very large international lawsuits dealing with geological movements and things. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. So what sort of, because you said you moved around a lot, what was a good fun day for you as a child? Um, well, in upstate New York growing up, of course, the weather dictated what we could do a lot of the times. You know, it was either summer warm and muggy uh, on the, in the Finger Lakes or it was filled with snow and, and bad conditions, which means we had to shovel the snow off the pond on which we skated and played hockey. So really a, a lot of athletics, hockey and lacrosse were really my upbringing. And then um, I'll admit this, that uh, the rambunctious years of the late teens, starting about 16, started to kick in. And a small town with older people around and the drinking age was 18. Late 60s, the revolution had started. We were all very much involved in the forward motion of consciousness. I'll put it that way. So um, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great experience. I must say, living in an intellectual community really stimulates uh, your thinking at a young age and gives you a lot of foundation to um, branch out and to question. So it was a worthwhile um, environment, I must put it that way. Right, great. right. And what sort of films were you watching? Oh, at that time, um, it's, this is strange, but um, when I was young at a birthday party, I mean, literally uh, elementary school, I was introduced to the serial. 
the cowboy serial with the open-ended um, finish where the cowboy was in a dire situation, the hero was about to die. But next week, oh my gosh, the guy sprouts wings and the world is great again until about 15 minutes later and stuff happens. And those kind of things really attracted me, as did um, the silent comedies, the early Laurel Hardys and um, uh, the Keatons and uh, Charlie Chaplin and those kind of things. I got fascinated by how people could laugh at other people and behaviors. And um, those things really drew my attention, which went against the philosophy of strict scholarship and education in our family. He's watching TV. That's not good. <laughs> He's going to the movies. That's not good. We must read our books. So, Did you have any um, favorite actors? Um, really, it, it moved along with the culture and the popularity of culture and who was great at those times. I mean, some of the characters in the Fred McMurray in the Disney movies, like Son of Flubber, was a, a big impact. But those silent actors really drew my attention. And it made me look at silent film as a small community or as a small inventory, the comedies, because that, that's really what was playing. When I got older and really studied the um, discipline, I realized the great depth of traumatic opportunity and narratives and science fiction and all these other great things that were out there that no one really showed to us. So really, uh, I enjoyed seeing those who were around the comedic uh, arena in silence and also in, um, you know, those kind of films at that time. Yeah. It was, you know, James Bond had started when I was 12. So to see James Bond, that was cool. That was iconic you know, what do you want to call it? A mentor-like, wow, I want to be him. Right. But uh, really, it was the comedy guys. Right, interesting. Well, you reminded me, they had very similar upbringing in terms of the films. They used to show Laurel and Hardy on the Saturday mornings um, when I was slightly older. And we also used to go to see the film serials, Saturday morning cinema. And it was, yeah, I absolutely remember those serials. It was great. It was a fun time. Yeah, innocent. I mean, obviously you ended up in film production. How did you kind of make that leap from watching these things and appreciating the comedy and the black and white and, and you know, these great guys like Buster Keaton and uh, Laurel and Hardy? How did you make the leap into film production? Well, when you see those people, men and women, doing things, and they are um, behaving in a way that really is a, um, and they're forwarding an ethic, a moral, a statement, a voice of some kind, but it's done on a comedic platform. I started to realize that this medium really does do something and say something. And when I was about 17, and we were in those, you know, take it to the man um, protests for against Vietnam and about treatment of people and women and other things at the university, I realized that a good channel to voice opinion would be through some kind of media presentation. And so I started to look at what the films were thinking. I want to just tell the truth. I want to stand up, tell them jokes and tell the truth. And so uh, I uh, challenged the, the family uh, directive, which is you go to college, you go to graduate school, you get a law degree, become a doctor, lawyer, chief, whatever it is, and said, no, I want to study communications, which was a real problem in the family, <laughs> I ostracized because it wasn't a, reading a lot of books, uh, curricula, um, curriculum. And so um, I bounced around a little bit in university and finally graduated with a approved family, approved degree in economics. 
and studied this, um, you know, the science and um, social sciences of, of, you know, I guess, financial behaviors and so forth. But then immediately, literally within three months of graduation, went to Los Angeles because I wanted to go to graduate school and I wanted to study film. And I had saved enough money as a bartender uh, to get an airplane ride and, um, and uh, cheap uh, accommodations. And I started going to UCLA, not as an enrolled student, but just going to UCLA classes and saying, oh, I'm here. I, I, you know, I'm Fritz. I'm the big dog. And I'm going to talk about film when you're going to teach me. So they told me not to come around anymore. Um, and I found work through a, a reference by somebody to the commercials that were being made in Los Angeles, all the TV commercials. There, were, there was at the time, middle 70s, 74, 75, huge volume of industrial commercial work being done there and in New York, a little bit in Chicago, but LA was the go-to place for all the New York agencies. So I attached myself kind of by sitting in their offices until they told me to go home to a production company um, and was persistent in my desire to be part of their daily activities. And day by day, they would give me a, a job uh, and then call me when another opportunity came up to run errands and do little small things. And after a few months, finally, someone in a full-time position left and they asked me to take that position, a position I knew nothing about. Manage all our stage and our equipment and our cameras. I, I know that stuff. I'm Fritz. I know that stuff. So following, uh, following back on my family, I ran to the books and I started to read deeply and research and um, maneuvered my way through a lot of the conversations and got in a lot of trouble for the mistakes I made, but found a mentor, a director in TV commercials who saw my passion and interest. And he kind of guided me to do these things. And for about three, four years, I worked for that company every week making different commercial products for different uh, industrial products, different clients. I got to understand how it all worked. I moved up. I learned and trained to be a camera assistant and then started to shoot on my own uh, on the weekends with their cameras. Um, Caleb Deschanel was their cinematographer at the time. So he was the one that gave me lessons on the side and kicked my chair when I broke things um, that you shouldn't break. And then uh, one of the guys with whom I worked, who did all the production management, he and I decided maybe we could open a business that would facilitate the Europeans, Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, Adrian Lyon, who were coming to the United States um, just at the late 70s to make TV commercials as a vehicle to get them in front of Fox and Paramount and the big studios so they could pitch their feature films. They had been making commercials for 10 years or more, had incredible showreels, and they now wanted to graduate into a, a larger arena. So we became this business front for them. They rented our licenses and our offices, and we brought in crews, and we helped facilitate Adrian Lyons TV commercials for, I don't know, Ray-Bans or whatever it was. And again, we're introduced to a different style and whatnot. I then found uh, one of the men that we work with frequently in Los Angeles, a friend more or less, um, was an advertising agency producer who did not like the commercial companies to which he was contracting the business for the agency. <laughs> Fritz, I can do that for you. Yeah, let's, I can 
you, I'll let you direct and I'll shoot, blah, blah. So we started making um, retail department store commercials for him. And it turned into making, oh, 10 or so a week in these fast moving, fast, low budget, but lucrative, financially lucrative opportunities and just pumped out uh, commercials. And it gave us a chance to do everything. But at lunchtime, we looked, you know, we were aggressive. Lunchtime with full crew, no one doing anything, and a full set and all the props and all the equipment, we had designed our own commercials, which were better than the commercials we were doing. And we would get the crew to help us shoot for an hour, close up of lunch meets or something that looked like a national commercial. And we made fake commercials that we then took to the advertising agencies and said, we represent, we've done this work. And they said, well, you're not bad. And they would give us bigger jobs. So we moved from small retail through these fake commercials, which really paid off into, and they knew they were false. They were just, you know, proof of um, ability kind of things, sizzle reel, promo reel kind of things, but they got attention. They got some awards and we got into bigger commercials, more money, and then the man who was helping me do a lot of production management started a job at a studio and said, you and your business partner should make feature films. Here are three feature films. So my path is really unique. No one really gets the luck that I've um, you know, found. But a lot of it has been through a, a dedication, a persistence, and uh, I should say being annoying to a lot of people to fulfill what I wanted to do. And um, it paid off because we did take on the first film, the Children of the Corn film, as our first feature effort, using the, the uh, uh, business approach and business model of making a television commercial. We literally hired the people who had commonly worked with us, consistently worked with us, pardon me, on a commercial. And we ran off to look at locations two days after we were awarded the opportunity. And we were, I don't know, about three months later in production. We just moved quickly. And... Uh, found our way. And that led to more and more and more and more. Were you familiar with Stephen King's work when it was pitched to you? A little bit in that, you know, he represented an entire cottage industry of the, as a writer, he is a cottage industry. I mean, he's a singular uh, force behind a lot of what shaped a lot of the, the genre and our understandings of everything that go into horror. I mean, he really remodeled it um, there in the seventies and eighties. And I knew him, but I didn't know the story. So I had to familiarize myself with this story. And um, that was a, a good challenge. And then again, a bigger challenge when it came to familiarizing or manipulating or adapting, I guess is the proper word, because we'll use editing here. I said it became a bigger chore to adapt the script from this uh, novella. But no, I had not really known him. Right. It, it, no, known his work other than what I'd seen. At that time, I think it was Carrie, um, The Shining, um, Creepshow, maybe Cujo. I think if I put the chronology correct, I yeah, think they preceded it, yeah. my effort in some way. Yeah. So, what was, so obviously, working, they say never outwork with children and animals uh, in the business, but you had a lot of children to work with. Um, on the children of the corn what was the auditioning process like for finding and what were you looking for when you're casting the children um the man who i mentioned who helped us who presented these feature films opportunities to us 
had engaged as a studio executive. He engaged and pushed us to engage this casting woman, Linda Francis, whose expertise at the time was really, really good. She's since passed away, unfortunately, but she's responsible for a lot of really good casting and starting people. She introduced me to Robert Downey and to James Spader, who I put in my second film, and a lot of people that she identified as great. So she was really good at introducing the age group appropriate for Children of the Corn. And we spent a lot of time thinking about the moral aspects of an underage, naive child, a very malleable, um, shapeable, that's a you know, same thing, influenced or influential, what's the right word? Um, mind and we didn't want to corrupt them so right for the young for the youngest kids our issue my business partner and i the producer terry kirby and i thought about only doing scenes with those children um away from others so they didn't see kind of the total context of what they were providing in the overall narrative and so there was no introduction or uh, violence in front of them it was a very um, passive and, and comfortable thing. But Linda Francis really found a number of kids and the audition process was fun. It was like a TV commercial, meet them, see what they're all about. Then as soon as they leave, we pull down a chart and we have headshots of the leads and we see, okay, how's this child look in terms of a family element for these adults? And we kind of, you know, physical aesthetics and then of course, dramatic skills and abilities, freshness, all these things added to choices, but it was, it was fun, but it, it's, it's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure. And what about the other auditions? Cause you put together a great cast, a couple of whom I've already spoken to on the show, John and uh, Courtney, oh. but what, do you have any memorable stories from the actual auditions? Uh, for the, oh, absolutely. For the absolutely. I mean, first of all, I'm really looking forward to seeing John and Courtney this weekend in Pennsylvania at the, the Creature Feature Festival there. We haven't been together uh, and visited for, I don't know, 15 years or something. And I, and I really, I've spoken with and emailed with Courtney over the years, but John has, you know, we lost touch. And so it's going to be fun to catch up and joke and, and, and things. Uh, they're great. But each of them had a unique casting. Um, Courtney's was... Well, let me do John first, because I think Courtney's is more comedic and more explosive in, in, in when you hear the story. John had just finished university, I believe. And so when introduced by Linda Francis on the day of the first audition and having seen adults, uh, full statured and complete adults who, OK, you're threatening, you've got you know, a scar, you've got a dueling scar over here and you got a tattoo over here. Yeah, that's, you know, that's not unique and, and, and culty enough. And John came in and well, there was no question. I mean, it was just rubber, just stamp, done, do. I, don't open your mouth. Don't speak. It's Woody Allen. Don't speak. You're the guy. I just go to wardrobe. You know, he was just wonderful. And he embraced this whole concept and the opportunity and challenge of being part of the film. And then that character in a really good way, he was very comfortable with the children, but he kept reminding them, I'm just pretending to speak in their language. And he just embraced it. And he came in with fierceness and ferocity and, and truthfulness and, and everything in genuine kind of preparation for this role. So he, he understood it from the very beginning and what this character he wanted to portray was all about. So it wasn't very hard, I must say. And it quickly, all the others off the list. Courtney, on the other hand, 
walks in. Now, Los Angeles is filled with, oh, 16 to 35-year-old males. There's a million. And everyone's an actor, as you know, and I've heard these stories. When they come in for interviews, usually they kind of dress the part or they sometimes don't care or they sometimes dress up and they want to look great, right? So through the inventory of people we went, seeing so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and then in comes this scraggly, long red hair, unkept kid in pants that stopped above his ankles, who had a funny accent, who was just like out of the little rascals kind of thing. But he was absolutely angry and fierce, and his eyes just burned into myself and the studio guy and Terry Kirby, the producer. And uh, usually I yammer a little bit, making someone relaxed before we begin so I can see how they are as a relaxed conversational human being and then see how that changes when they act, right? He didn't, and this guy, he's straight on. He's going to kill all of us. And so producer or the studio guy thinks I'll do Fritz and he starts yammering with him. And I just kept grabbing his arms and stopped talking. Just shut up. Let the kid go. He's just in mindset. He's focused. He's got the game face on. And he went through a scene where he was to challenge, I believe, uh, the bad guy in the end, using a hostage or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it included him grabbing the other man, getting physical. Most actors will um, um, indicate that physicality. They won't get into it because it's a, you know, disrespectful to get too rough. But the poor casting assistant that worked for um, Linda Francis was reading the other side of the scene. And Courtney grabs him and pulled out a large, I mean, a machete that must have been about this long, a real one, and put it up at his neck. And the poor kid went through the roof. <laughs> he just, that's it. I quit. I'm never doing this again. I hate this stuff. This guy's absolutely insane. And he had all kinds of inflammatory words. He just went off on this guy. And Courtney just said, dude, like I'm, I'm acting. I'm really a nice guy. But that said it for Courtney. Like, Wow. You were so good at what you just did in this presumed character, this assumed character, I guess the right word. Um, I just loved him. And it turned out he was great all the way through. But yeah, he really did scare the pants off uh, the poor casting assistant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you. So where did you film uh, Children of the Corn? Well, after I met the studio guys who had just acquired the, the brand name, as the new company, the new, new world from Roger Corman, literally within months, they had enough funding to start production on a few films. So I went to these really crummy offices over a restaurant. Uh, I think it was a Thursday, talked with one man who asked very simple questions. Who's your favorite film director, horror film director? You know, what do you know? How long are you making commercials? I saw your work. Would you want to go do this? It took maybe 45 minutes or so went downstairs and talked to my business partner, Kirby, who's now going to produce. And I think it was Monday, we were on an airplane on our way to Texas and um, Iowa and Nebraska looking for those locations appropriate for the storytelling. I mean, it just moved very quickly. And we were received extremely well in Iowa, uh, in South Dakota, actually, uh, by a man who kind of represented a film commission, but it wasn't really a film commission in the state, and showed us a variety of opportunities within about 30 miles of, uh, of each other. And we said we could patch this together and make a beautiful um, world. 
and an island of a village within this sea of corn from all these various locations. So off we went to the um, um, just the bottom corner there um, in Iowa. Was it Iowa? Yeah, South Dakota. Right. I shouldn't. I should know where we went. Right. <laughs> Whiting, Salix, and um, uh, all these little towns. But yeah, we found it and loved it. And then uh, came back to Los Angeles and started planning and preparing for everything. So what was the hardest thing about making the film? Well, you brought up children. And and children are difficult in in a number of uh, labor ways. Uh, The standards and and practices in employing children uh, mean that you have can only work so long based on their age with each child during the day. They must have certain conditions in which they work. Um, And when you are on a schedule to make so much film, record so much film, so many scenes per day, and the children can only work a limited amount of that time, we have to get doubles. We have to figure out a way to shoot around the children over the children's uh, assumed shoulder, but actually someone who is a lookalike. So that presented a problem, um, and but it was not overcomable. Obviously, it worked. It was really quite good. Um, the biggest problem, biggest challenge was that we did all our research and our scouting. I think it was July, maybe late June. I think it was July when we flew around and drove around and found these beautiful houses, small towns, seas of cornfields and everything that was just perfect only to return ready to pull the trigger on the camera and find that all the corn was dying or had been harvested. Literally one side of the road would be gone and the other side was now yellow and falling down. Uh, The beautiful green six foot corn fields were far and few between. And further, they were scheduled to be harvested while we were there. So suddenly our plan had to pivot on the farmer's um, income plan. I mean, when are they going to harvest? So we ran around and it was, it was kind of weird. We even painted corn to make it look like it was healthy at times. So that was the hard part. Right. Right. Hey, now you, you mentioned doing um, uh, commercials uh, kind of up to this point. Had you done any drama films before you took on children of the corn? Only the uh, short narratives that I was interested in doing on my own, the ones that I made at university and then the ones I made with friends um, when we borrowed equipment out the back door of the TV commercial company um, and um, things like that. Um, I did a graduate student film uh, for graduate students as a cinematographer. And um, I, I was real familiar with it. I knew how it worked. I certainly understood all that, but I certainly don't understand. I did not understand what I know now. I'll put it that way. Right. This was film school at its best. Right. Go make return. Otherwise we'll burn your house down kind of contract, you know, and uh, it, it was really um, learning by application. Right. Right. What do you enjoy most about the filmmaking process then? I mean, particularly looking back, we talked about the difficulties of doing Children of the Corn, but what do you enjoy most about? Well, you know, it's funny, Nikki, this is really good. And it's a good question because I think all of us who get involved in this, uh, in these opportunities and in this discipline, in this world have different reasons why it works for them. But strangely enough, like the talking head song, you know, this is not my wife. This is not my beautiful house. This is not this. This is what I think is fantastic. We, the group that we gather and join together, uh, dream up ideas to fulfill a greater idea. And all of it is fake. 
this character, this person does not say this. These are not his clothes. That is not his spouse or her spouse. This is not their home. It is an entire false value. But when we put it all together, son of a gun, I believe it. You know, it's very similar to we follow the truth of this universe. And I think that's just fascinating. It's such a, a magic trick. Right. And, and I love that part of it. Right, right. Go back to Children of the Corn, obviously, Stephen King. Did you, have you ever met Stephen King? No. Uh, uh, a short anecdote on that. Is, no, I've never met him. I received or read a note from him after he saw the film. It wasn't very complimentary uh, because it wasn't his script. He had written a script for this novella, and it was unsuccessful, and no one would take it up. But... Um, um, Hal Roach, who started The Little Rascals, saw it and thought he could reinvent, redo His Little Rascals, but in a bad way. So he acquired the script and then found financing with a couple of companies. And then no one wanted to do it the way Hal Roach wanted to do it. So finally, he unloaded it on the New World guys and the syndicate of financiers. And they turned it into, and we turned it into the genre it is, and the genre-specific um, film that mm-hmm. it is. And therefore, Stephen King probably didn't like what he saw because his script was completely changed. Now, I, I, that's a bad word. It wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't completely changed, uh, but it wasn't the, the, the story exactly the way he had written it. Um, right. But, right. you know, the, the problems of production, issues of finishing and other things cause compromises. But when I was in Pittsburgh uh, a year ago, I was walking in a little town near Pittsburgh, up the river from Pittsburgh, at a bookstore. I saw he was coming to the bookstore. Son of a gun. I was going to be there before it opened on Monday morning to meet him, to say hello and introduce myself, only to go back to find out that the poster was a year old. So (laughs) I will one day get to meet him and uh, perhaps um, uh, tell him how much I like what he's done and and tell him I'm a fan. But uh, now to date, right? yeah, we don't exchange Christmas gifts or cards. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I completely understand that. So Don't Children of the Corn, it is. I mean, it was a great success at the time, I think. Oh, yeah. I think box office, it was in the top five for a couple of weeks. But like all products in this genre, they peak and they have a long tail as they find their way out of the um, theatrical market into the supplementary and auxiliary markets, ancillary markets. But yes, it it sponsored a number of sequels. Um, It has become a a meme or even a kind of a cult thing. You see references to it all the time now. Um, I'm thankful for that. It's just really, it's kind of fun. That it's set an identity uh, about behavior in people. Yes, yeah, that was great. It is a great film. I really enjoy it. Um, the other film I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned earlier on, uh, was Tough Turf. Oh, uh, with and James Spader and uh, young young James Spader as well. Um, well, Robert Downey Jr. and Spader were like two weeks out of diapers, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so was this and not you mentioned that you were offered three films to begin yes. with but this was this another one of those three yes but it came rapidly with the success of children on the corner literally the box office reports come in on um over the weekend we look and evaluate on monday and by tuesday fritz would you like to do another film here's another idea for you and the studio executive my old friend uh who had a um, romeo juliet 
property right there. Let's do this. He had kind of dreamed it up and developed it into something with a writer. And, um, you know, you're standing there. I could go back and make commercials or wait a minute. You really like me and you like what we've done and I can make another because I enjoyed the experience. And so let's see. And then off we go to the races on that. A little more money, a little more time to make the film uh, larger scale all around. But yeah, it came quickly. Right, right. And again, how, how did you mentioned the casting director earlier on? She brought you James Spader and, and Robert? Yeah. 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 Um, Bob was Robert, uh, I guess we have to call him, uh, was in New York and Spader has, was living in Los Angeles. So I was able to meet uh, Jimmy Spader firsthand and we talked and wow, this kid's squeaky and cool, but edgy and it's good and what great qualities he has. And um, he had been in, I believe, um, a Zeffirelli film as a, like a third banana just before our film. So we could see, I could see what he did and how he behaved and how he looked when photographed. Robert was on a casting tape reading for the James Spader role as a tough guy. And, uh, you know, everybody said, Oh man, this guy, and I said, you don't get it. He's the, he's the foil. He's a comedic foil for Spader. He's the sidekick. We have found our man. He's the one that will oppose the drama and, and uh, surus of what Spader's character does with some lightness. And he also gets heroic moments. And, you know, this is the guy. Look at him. He's just having the best time. And so I, at that point, I believe he had really just done films with his dad, um, like Pound and Putney Swope, and not really any Hollywood commercial product. So he was full of energy and passionate and willing to jump off cliffs. And he was just, I just love the guy. Actually, both of them. They're just wonderful people. But Robert, something about him. It's just, you just, you just laugh. It's like talking with you. He's always smiling. He's just <laughs> always happy. Well, I, yeah, I'm very impressed by both of them. You know, complete, as you say, completely different and extraordinary careers, actually, the both of them. I mean, you know, obviously the MCU and so on, but I love what Spader has been doing recently in terms of oh. TV and, and, just has such presence. Character flip from his early theatrical work, where he played a different kind of teenager or a teenager in Oxford or something, just like Robert has done a variety of different dramatic turns and different kind of conditions and things. But Spader has turned into a, the, one of the best bad guys, yeah. just a fully um, think uh, and thought out, fully realized uh, evil. And he's, he's mastered it for television. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's that's his skill. I mean, he was a good thinking, fully engaged actor, thinking mm -hmm. choices and, and wanting to do um, um, risky things during the film. Right. Now, I want to bring you forward quite a bit into your career as an educator. Um, and I believe establishing a lot of the film industry in Oklahoma as well. So how did all this come about? There's change of direction slightly or perhaps anyway, returning to your roots in some way uh yeah it's uh, ulysses isn't it damn it i'm gonna have to kill everybody before i get my wife back you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in fact i grew up in ithaca that's what makes it really bizarre you know that the the island and everything ithaca new york right. um academics came to me partly because um, a good friend of mine uh, for now 30 some years 
or so. Gray Fredrickson, who produced The Godfather and Apocalypse and a number of Coppola films, The Outsiders. And I mean, it goes along. Um, he, he was living in Los Angeles at the time. And we got to know one another. And he came to a number of my films as a guest. Come see what I'm doing. Here's my film. And he would look at them. His background really, he was making low cost, low budget, what were then called low budget films, B films, but they're really the independent film, the beginning of the independent um, industry in the early 80s, late 70s. Um, and Godfather just was a cheap film that just exploded and turned into what it is, you know, iconic piece of uh, cinema, you know, best in the, in the world kind of thing. And so he would always say to me, how do you make films for the price you make them for? You make films for a very limited, restricted budget. And I spend on my films that for the toilets and the, the, the Teamsters. I don't understand how it works. And so we worked on another number of projects promoting them, uh, trying to get them made. Um, Hulk Hogan was a big project we pushed around for a long time as a, as a hero, you know, an action hero. Um, lots of different things would come our way and we'd talk about it, work on it. Then he decided Los Angeles is not the place for his children to grow up. Beverly Hills was not the environment. And he is an Oklahoman. He was born here. His family were early participants in the development of the state and very important. Um, so he came back to Oklahoma in 1999, I believe and was immediately approached by the economic development of the state, the committee saying, could you help us in some way get film out here because it's a smokeless industry and we could put and offer things for filmmakers in a unique way. And so he called me up, come on, Fritzy, you got to come to Oklahoma, you know? And I would say, no, 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 I don't want you know, I fly over that place. I'm not going. And then he would, for a year, come on, he'd call and say, I just had a full all-you-can-eat lunch for $3.52. What are you doing today? And I would be stuck on the highway, you know, sweating for an hour. and say, I don't want to talk to you. And then that lieutenant governor came out for a lot, came to Los Angeles for a number of um, promotional tours to promote industry in Oklahoma, one of which, of course, was this new idea to incentivize uh, productions and to get people to come to Oklahoma to use the available resources that were here. Lacking in all of this formula was a good um, depth in labor. They really didn't have a labor force here that was of any meaning to any substantial producer. So Gray uh, identified that and said, we need a training program, but it has to be at the um, college level. And um, so the state ponied up the necessary elements to put together uh, um, a training program. And they said, Fritz, come and do it. And we worked out an arrangement. I came to um, Oklahoma and thought, this is the greatest place in the world. Look, everybody's nice. People say hello. They give me things. Nobody gave me the finger in the car when they were driving. I mean, it's just nice. And uh, so I realized I could work on a number of films at the same time with students, as opposed to making one film per year which is the kind of schedule you get to make or have, unless you're doing episodic television, you have limited output. And I could be in my passionate way, more active, more participatory. So I thought, great. So I came out and I designed a program, helped design the program, then modified it and then developed it. And then after five years, another institution, a bigger university, which uh, was really known and is known for performing arts, Kristen Chenoweth's, University said, come and do what you do there for us 
here and we'll give you a you know what you need to make a film studies program film production program up to the graduate level and then i was approached in pittsburgh to go there and do something like that and then came back here and do have worked for the university of oklahoma teaching classes and other things but all along gray and i made a few films using student labor for college credit and made theatrical films so that we could give them the experience I had with the, that he had on the job training. So we never really stopped making product. Um, I'm still making it today. In fact, returning kind of to a full time, let's go make product now. Let's not just think about academics, but let's, let's split, our, uh, split our focus. So it, it became a really good opportunity. The academic world is a wonderful world. It's uh, filled with fantastic people and really interesting um, knowledge that keeps you you know, lifelong learner is the term. Keeps you right. challenged. Right, right. What do you find, you're speaking about it so enthusiastically, so I'm trying to work out how to best ask my next question, which is what do you get most from dealing with students? What What is it that most excites you when you're working with students on a film set? Number one, I'm the same age as the students. I don't care what they see with this beautiful package, but I'm like 19 and stupid and full of energy and you can't stop my passion. And that's what they provide. They show you that you still have what they and how they behave and you have to keep your interest going. So it's wonderful to be challenged by these kids. They constantly teach me and this fulfills this lifelong learner. I don't keep up with every technical advancement every new cool thing that's out there. And these guys will, men and women, will challenge you with, what do you know about this? And I'll say, oh, shoot, I know everything. And you don't know anything because it just came on the market and it's being used in some big product uh, production in England, like uh, the Mandalorian, that set they have, it's Mm. all LED screens. I didn't know about that until a student said, you don't see Mandalorian? So... um, that's part of it. That's the challenge. It's, it's the, the, the benefit of being current on things is really, really good. To see the light bulb go on, to see them see what I saw at the moment of discovery when I figured out, oh, it's Einstein and Eisenstein, two different people. I see, I see, you know, that kind of stuff. And then understand the theories behind Eisensteinian um, um, uh, scholarship and, and others in the Russian cinema world. It, it's that kind of discovery that's always great. Right, right, right. And do you write at all? Yes. Oh, yeah. I've written a number of scripts. Uh, quite a few are still are out, you know, circulating right now. Um, it looks like something's coming together very quickly here on a police uh, true story, true crime story about a policeman here in Oklahoma City that we uh, anticipate doing here in Oklahoma. Um, episodic television. I have a few of those that are out. They're kind of um, period pieces and things. But yes, you have to stay active. And I can only encourage anybody who thinks about these things to try writing because it opens your thinking to how you make a production work. If you understand structure, you'll understand how to acquire the elements to fulfill that structure. And then again, when you start editing, doing the physical editing, you will become a filmmaker because that's where the films are made. Wow. So it's, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's good. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm trying to limit the adage the film is made once when the script is written, once during shooting, and for the final time during the editing process. Oh, yeah. And then let's not leave out the two killers. One, the screenplay is rewritten again when the composer applies that wonderful landscape, the sonic landscape, and all the mixing that is done with all the help of all the sound designers. And then that son of a bitch projectionist who has too little of a globe in the projector. And so it's all dim. And they, they provide a different screenplay reception to the audience, for the audience. Yeah. So it never ends. It never yeah. ends. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully put. I think that's a, a good place to kind of end this part of the interview. Apart from just to reiterate that I think we were saying for the first time you're doing a public appearance at a, a convention, uh, this time Gettysburg, what do you think you're going to be walking into? How do you think this is all going to go? I, I've been to, um, actually, I went to the New York Comic Con. Uh, my daughter was involved in that in a certain way. So I went to meet her one day and my head just spun around like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize the fanaticism that people go to the extent. This is cool. This is fun. So I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to the energy um, that people have about what they experience when they watch the film. Not the products themselves, but what was their experience? Because that's what they tell you. Uh, over the years, as people talk about the products I've made, they talk about what and how it affected them, and not just the, the story or any of those things. And I love hearing those personal stories. I guess it's back to behaviors. How are people behaving like Laurel and Hardy? Um, so that I'm, I'm jazzed about that. I'm looking forward to that. Right. I think it'd be great. And as I said, being in Pennsylvania with um, in Gettysburg this weekend with Courtney and uh, John, it'll be fun. It'll be hanging out with them. And I, you know, yes, we've never done it that we haven't hung out too much, but we've never been publicly together to talk with people about it. And we, I understand, we'll be talking over the presentation of the film. So oh, wow. we can give our points of view and memory wow. and um, kind of back uh, behind the scenes anecdotes. So it'll be it'll be really cool. It's, right. I, I'm I'm jazzed. Right. I may wear a clean shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so that's this weekend, and uh, had confirmation from Chris that yeah, um, you're joining them at Texas Frightmare in September as well yes um, and i understand the the attendance at that is larger which means we'll even have more it, fun and be it, able to talk to more people and hear their, their it, it, yeah, it, as i've said on this show a number of times having done it myself about three or four times it's extraordinary it's huge it, it probably is the largest show in the country outside oh. san diego comic con which is something completely different um the, yeah, Texas Frightmare. You're going to have a great time there. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. That's good. Cool. cool. I, I, I better wear armor. I, you know, if it gets, you know, I, I, now you're scaring me. You're I know. Scared, not right? at all. <laughs> I know. Oh, no, you're going to be incredibly look, well looked after. Incredibly oh. well looked after. Right. I'd just like to finish with the uh, luggage in the crypt questions. Oh, okay. So, explaining earlier on that basically the idea is, you know, we're, facing the final curtain and you're making a decision as to what, what film would you take with you into this magnificent pyramid that we're going to be building you? If that's well, how you'd like to rest. As long as they have good iced tea in there, I'm happy to go wherever you want. 
go, you know, but, you know, it's funny having watched, I don't know how many hours in so many different films and different genres and so forth to, to elevate one or three to a level of these are my favorites, but in, in teaching a lot of different aspects uh, of the discipline and, and how it all works, a foundationally important film for me and one that's instructionally very important is, is Clockwork Orange. And I look at that because of the literary challenges of telling a story about morals. Even though someone's doing something bad, are we right in changing their moral direction and how that works? The execution of it, the, the aesthetic of it, the production design, adding to the narrative at all times, the wonderful idea of the sonic, the, the, the hearing, and how that just weaves and supports and, and makes this story even more impactful and powerful. In, in fact, in, I, I love it so much, I've tried to honor it and mention it in Tough Turf. The bad kids steal a Porsche, and they're driving it, and they get arrested. And the scene that I wrote in there, injected in there, was cut back by the studio to only be now. Um, I think the driver says, oh, man, this is just like that movie. And the guy says, what movie? Because it's the same framing and style as the guys who drive the um, drive rapidly in their, their car game at night when they run people off the road. Um, but it was a little bit longer dialogue about and it referenced, you know, that one with the, the color movie, the one that is named Orange, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think it's it's a fantastic film. It's just great. I can watch it, and I've seen it maybe 50 times. Wow. Well, in September, then you'll have a chance to meet Malcolm McDowell if you haven't already met him before. I can't wait. We have a mutual friend in Los Angeles, and I just I'm going to call him and say, tell him. Tell him I'm going to look for him. (laughs) He's great. Absolutely lovely man. Um, What about a book? A book? Mm-hmm. Ah, you know, it, this may be dull, but over, over the fiction and, and those kind of books, I really like technical books. I really look at uh, books about uh, technology and skills and things and, and enjoy that. Uh, even, you know, not just film technology, but things about excavating and the archaeological digs in Egypt. It just keeps sponsoring ideas and, and well, what ifs come to thought. So um, research through or search through and find one of those. That would be something that would keep me busy for quite a while. One of those. I mean, something I could then start at the beginning. Oh, it has to be a tome. It has to be yeah. big enough that it is the coffee table. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those kind of things. Yeah. 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 I know those sort of manuals. Yeah. I love those. Yeah. yeah. What about um, music and album? Well, there's no question. You don't even have to go for it. You take everything James Brown's ever made and you put it in there. Okay. And we just dance and we just keep going. And we, we get to say things like, good God. And uh, it's just, oh, I love it. Yeah. James Brown's always been my favorite. Okay. What about a piece of visual art, a statue or painting? Well, I've always been partial to impressionists. <clears throat> impressionists or really postmodern work. And so I would probably choose one of those two um, schools or those two um, areas of work and find the exact piece in there. Um, You know, uh, like Surratt's work, I think is fantastic. Mm. The pointillism and how the individual colors affect the color next to it 
And what we see based on two unique colors, we get a third color out of two unique colors. That kind of stuff to me is fantastic. But I also like the cleanliness and some of the challenges, intellectual challenges of postmodern work. And so maybe, um, uh, I don't know who might fit into that category. Oh, the hell with the postmoderns. We'll go right to the Russians, the supremacists. One of those, Malevich or somebody like that. I'd take one of those. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That kind of pushes the, sets up the foundation for some postmodern work. Right. So you mentioned iced tea, um, supply, an endless supply of iced tea. Is there a luxury, something just, it's not a food, it's not just something that makes you feel warm, that's practically, you know, Totally impractical, probably, but it's just nice to have around. Oh. Well, there's my wife. You cannot beat, and she is not liquid or any of those things, but she's one, and my children. They are the best and the most supportive and, and just the best friends and the greatest. And now they're 33, 35, approximately. <clears throat> um, human beings like that. To me, uh, although you can't commoditize them and you can't put them into a, a container, anyway. they are just uh, so you have to make extra room for those those people. I don't okay, know. you don't need a freezer for the ice cream. We need the beds for them. <laughs> okay, cool. With their permission, as long as they're happy, that's absolutely doable, and I think it's a lovely choice. You, you give them some toast now and then, and they're happy. <laughs> 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 I should remember that if I ever meet them. Um, Fritz, this has been so much fun. Thank you very much indeed. Wow, Nick, it's a treat. You know, I, I just love talking about things like this. And I get a little long-winded and and, uh, and usually get the arm, the hook by my wife, like cut it, just say yes or no. But to go back over a few things and to see your reception of this and your enthusiasm for it has been terrific. So I appreciate you and what you allowed me to engage into or engage in. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you very much. And have great fun at the shows. Take oh, care. I'm looking forward to it. I'll write you a note and tell you, you know, how good it was. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Take care, sir. All right. Bye. Bye. My thanks again to Fritz Kirsch. What an inspiring and energetic man he is. And I'm sure he's going to have fun at those conventions. Join me next week for some more stories from the worlds of horror, thriller and suspense. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions.